It's Two Brain Radio. Every week, we'll deliver top-shelf tactics to help you improve your fitness business and move you closer to wealth. And now, here's your host, the most interesting man in fitness, Chris Cooper. This episode is brought to you by Zen Planner. If you've read my books, you know that I've been a mind-body guy since about 2007. But this year, something happened that made a massive difference. I met Zen Planner. In talking to these guys, I realized how responsive they are and how much they actually care about CrossFit affiliates and the gym industry in general. These guys are willing to listen. They'll make changes based on what gyms actually need instead of the window dressing stuff that gym owners just kind of like. They think it makes them look cool. Things that will actually change the client experience. Metrics that your coaches can use to gauge how well your clients are reacting to your programming. Check-in tools, attendance tools, wad tracking and scoreboards. The ability to plan and have people book appointments online and pay online. True automation of your business. I love working with these guys. We're going to have a great relationship. They're building a customized two-brain dashboard, and they've got so many amazing upgrades in the pipeline that will cancel out the need for other software. You should check them out, zenplanner.com. They've been around forever, but they keep getting better. I graduated university in 1998 one of the first students ever to complete an exercise science track at this school. I was pumped full of academic confidence. I thought after four years, I knew everything. What else was there to learn? And then I met my first client and realized I had no idea what I was doing. My university education had prepared me for a career in university education. Most of the top earning jobs back then were worth about 40,000 bucks a year as a professor teaching the same stuff that I had just learned. And I'd have to get a master's to do that. My other option was to become a chiropractor or an athletic trainer, both of which also required additional education. Even worse, most of my education had focused on preparing athletes for sport but hadn't actually taught me a lot of exercise technique. Most of what I learned about exercise and lifting weights and working out was done in the dingy little university weight room. Now for context, when I graduated university, the school had two computers with internet access and they were in this administrative building all the way across campus from the gym, so I never went there. Things have changed a lot. There are a ton of new options for education, especially in fitness. But the debate remains, are we better to pursue education through an academic institution like a university first and then gain practical experience in the field? Or are we best to gain practical experience after completing a commercial certification or weekend seminar and then maybe later pursue an academic standard that will lead to a career in higher education or athletic training, or chiropractic, or maybe even a PhD in research. My name is Chris Cooper, and I've been in this game a long time. When I finally realized that I didn't know how to help a client lose weight, or actually achieve any goal outside of the sporting realm that they wanted, I started learning a lot more about fitness, and a lot less about the exercise, quote-unquote, sciences. One of the first of 10 names that I discovered was Lon Kilgore. Lon, at that time, had already published Anatomy Without a Scalpel. Soon he'd come up with Starting Strength, the book he wrote with Mark Ripito, and he's going to talk about that process too. Very few people 
in the world of exercise science have seen and done what Lon Kilgore has done. He's incredibly smart. We talked for an hour for this interview, and right after we finished, he emailed me to say he had a couple of more thoughts he'd like to share. So we talked for another hour. The second part of this interview, for me, is even more interesting than the first because we really start talking about where is the best education in fitness if your goal is to serve your clientele, to truly help people, to do the things that are going to make a difference. How do you do it? Where do you learn? Is it better to go the commercial route or is it better to go the academic route? We're going to talk about the NSCA, the ACSM. ACE, a bunch of other certifications. We're going to talk about the Kilgore Academy, all his online courses, of which I'm an aficionado because, as many of you know, I've got a lot of online courses too. We're going to talk about how new technology is creating new ways and better ways to learn, how somebody can learn more in a 16-hour weekend than I learned in four years of education at a higher university. Lon has a PhD. But his education started with the barbell. And so that's where our story starts this week. This is a pretty, pretty easy to track the when and why I picked up a barbell. I'm a rather diminutive in, in stature. I stand a whopping five foot four if I'm stretched out. And back in the 60s, early 70s, in public schools, there weren't many options for sport in people of my size. Uh, when I played, well, tried to play basketball in PE, they just put a short people, there's a few of us, up in the in the bleachers. I go sit in the bleachers and we'll run practice down here. <laughs> and, you know, there's there wasn't much opportunity to play a lot of sports at high level because you were playing, you were selected against, essentially. Because, you know, in American football, you're selecting four big guys. I may have been quick, but I wasn't very fast over. I'm sort of like Gimli. You know, I'm, I'm very quick over the short distance, but then that's about it. Um, and then the 1968 Olympics showed up, and they ABC's Wide World of Sports had a, had a they covered the 114 pound class. They had Adam Matoff, Zygmunt Smeltzer, a name that people should recognize from the United States now. Uh, the little 114-pound guys were a focus, and I said, wow, there's a sport that I could actually do. And so at the time, I lived out in Mexico, Missouri, which no one's ever heard of for the most part, out in the middle of farm country, Missouri, rural Missouri. The closest weightlifting coaches were hours away. So I basically, my dad, my parents have always been very supportive of anything I really wanted to try, any of what their kids wanted to try. And so... Dad bought me some Sears Orbitron concrete <laughs> vinyl-covered weights back in the day. Yeah. And so I tried to watch whenever they had weightlifting on TV. And this was the era of Regert and Alexia, so Wide World of Sports covered them. And so I could actually see some of the technique. And so I was trying to recreate what I saw. My dad was working on a, a – uh, Rehabilitation project. He was uh, in Missouri State Penitentiary System. Uh, he would work with the inmates and try to find them jobs on the outside, match skills to jobs on the outside. And through that, he met Bill Clark, who was one of the early and driving forces in weightlifting in the Midwest and the United States back in those days. And he set me up 
to go to a to the actual prison and learn how to lift weights with the inmates. So at age of, I think it was just turned 13, I was going into the prisons on weekends. Uh, my dad would drive about an hour up to where he worked and take me in. We'd go into the prison and a couple of the guys there that competed actually taught me how to lift better than what I could teach myself somewhat. They taught me split style. I had to turn, I had to learn the squat style myself out on the out in the patio. In the early days, I lifted outside on a patio. My dad actually had the Amish build me an oak platform that I lifted on for quite a while because they wouldn't let me in the house because I put a barbell through the floor uh, <laughs> early on in my practices. So Excellent. that's how I actually started. It was because it was a sport that anybody of any size could participate in and actually benefit from. And there was a follow-on part of that was, gosh, the coaching bit. The, the coaching bit was just simply the kids in the neighborhood. Okay. That's where it started. Yeah. When I started getting fairly decent and having success, which really wasn't that long. I guess I was my first nationals, junior Olympic nationals in 1973. And in the very next year, some of the neighborhood kids, well, we were out in the country, some of the country kids that came over to the house and – trained with weights and learned how to lift weights. I think there were about five or six of us that went to the junior national, junior Olympic nationals that next year. Wow. And I think the, the lowest we had was had one of us placed this. So wow. it was a, it was a pretty good, it was a lot of fun and it was good success for some kids out in the middle of nowhere. So that's where my, my career coaching started. And one of the things that people don't really understand about my coaching career and a lot of other weightlifting coaches' careers is that they never received a single penny of compensation for coaching weightlifters simply because there was no no money to pay for people. I mean, it wasn't – the community was small. The the uh, If somebody was going to pay for weightlifting, it was to get access to a gym that actually had weights. Then coaches would often just volunteer their times. Every coach I've ever had – I've never, I've never actually paid a coach in weightlifting because, and those are some of the best coaches around, simply because they were dedicated to the sport and developing the sport. It was their passion, their hobby. They all had full time jobs, and that's what I emulated throughout my entire career. I still haven't been paid by anybody to coach weightlifting. I did get paid for a bit for NCAA strength coaching, but that was a different ball of wax. Okay, so what led you to the, uh, the the collegiate level, you know, and, and just kind of how did your career go in fitness? How did it start? Where did it take you? Well, I retired out of weightlifting in 1982, and I sort of drifted around looking for occupations. Ended up finishing my bachelor's in biology. Then I went directly into the military. Okay. Went into the Army. And while I was in the Army, I did some fitness. Uh, I was one of the fitness NCOs stuff for the for the company. So that really doesn't count. I don't look at at the time. I didn't look at that as fitness related as a profession. So I went back into when I got out of the Army. I was going back to college. I had made a decision to, uh, and actually had gotten acceptance to a graduate program so I could uh, enter the field of cardiac rehabilitation. And so I had a full ride stipendship, but I needed a 30 day early out of the military to take it. And 
didn't get it. So hmm. what occurred is I was at Fort Riley, and then I contacted the Kinesis program at K-State, um, Go Cats, and they basically put me on a part-time stipend while I was still in the military and for the, while I was out processing and my company commander knew that I was only there for about 45 days. I actually landed in Fort Riley with 45 days left to in the military. And so the department of the army wouldn't let me out early to take the other position in Missouri. So they made me stay it for 45 days and out process. So when I was at K state in graduate school working on, pseudo cardiac rehab i found out very quickly through bob kramer um not bill kramer bob okay. kramer bob kramer from southeast louisiana they both study endocrinology of exercise but i like bob bob kramer kramer much better um, <laughs> he was interested in resistance training and he knew my background and so we you know, I became his his student. He was my mentor in my master's program for research. And so we did some pretty good endocrine research in the early days. And that got me interested in the science of exercise. And that science of exercise just led me down the road. And I actually re-entered competition, unretired, about 12 years after I retired during that, that time period. And while I was looking at the career field, I was actually in academia looking at how academics were trained, how PE teachers were trained, how kinesiology majors were trained. And I noticed a real big disconnect between what was taught in the classroom versus what we actually used in the field. It didn't match. What I had learned through you know a couple decades of practice in producing high-level athletes and producing stronger, more fit people really didn't match, you know, let's teach people how to juggle handkerchiefs and stuff in the classroom. So it was that that led me to start looking at and actually was what made me come up with my professional mission of changing how exercise is taught in the classroom and changing how exercise professionals are prepared the real world and what I found out and here's your two-minute part is that while I was in academia I felt like I was Don Quixote tilting at windmills because there was academia is big it's entrenched they do the things the way they've done forever making changes is extremely di difficult and the other bit is that you're only touching maybe 30 students at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's, and you had that those 30 students for a short period of their academic career. So it's minimal exposure. So an individual can't make a really big difference. You can't make a difference, but it's not a big difference. And that led me to explore different ways. And when I ended up in Texas, and ended up with RIP um, in Wichita Falls Athletic Club. Our discussions over, I got there in 1997. I think we started working on starting strength 2004, I think. So it took us about seven years to get to the point where I was 
pissed off enough at academia <laughs> and not being able to make things better. And he was convinced that I had had to, I actually had to convince him, and Mike Hartman had to convince him that what he ha has to say was valuable. Wow. He just thought of himself as a strength guy, a trainer in small town United, well, Wichita Falls, hundred thousand, medium sized town, USA, that not many people would listen to. But you know, we had science on our back, you know, in our in our back pocket. We had a very charismatic speaker. Rip is very charismatic, and when we thought about things. We came up with probably, I think, the best strength product, strength book product that's been written. And that's not because we're particularly brilliant. It's because we paid attention to what's useful. And that's what lots of books have not done. When we were prepping, thinking about this, we looked at the available textbooks and books in strength training that were available on the bookshelves in the United States at bookstores. I mean, they really had, you know, brick and mortar bookstores at the time. So yeah. I went to every bookstore I could find looking for every book, looked in the libraries, and I enumerated how many pages of useful material were in these books, whether they were fluff or whether they were actually irrelevant. And in one of the most notable examples was, you know, we looked at the NSCA's tomes back then. Yeah. And out of the 700, 800 pages, there was about 120 that could be considered useful for a practitioner to make somebody strong. Yeah. And so we thought that, you know, we could do better than that. And when we looked at one of my, my personal problems was that we didn't have available to people out in the field, people like me who was where I was out in the middle middle of nowhere, Mexico, Missouri, trying to figure out the best way to squat, the best way to clean. And all I have is a start position photo and a finish position photo and a few words. And that, how can you learn and how can you teach from a authoritative textbook if it only has that much material? So we wanted to, to do something much better and the squat was the first chapter that we wrote and illustrated, and that was 60-some pages long. So wow. we like to think that we changed how fitness, or at least changed how, how strength was taught and how it's described. People, came, that people that came before us or our contemporaries were amazed at what we did. Now people that are entering the field, you know, they, they, they don't realize that the, what they have available now was not available 10 years ago. Well, it is 11 years ago, 11 <laughs> years ago, it wouldn't have been available. Yeah. And, and, uh, luckily I do have that context of what was available back then and, and went through the NSCA's program and tried to teach cleans using those two drawings. And your first initiative of trying to like link or bridge academia with actual, you know, utility in the trenches, I guess would have been practical programming, right? Yeah, practical practical programming. I actually started writing that when I was a master's okay. uh, student. Uh, that was actually it was the original title of it was going to be practical periodization because I knew that periodization was being inappropriately taught. People didn't have a good concept of how periodization worked and how you do anything beyond what people were considering Matt Vea's periodization. 
because you know classical periodization, you know, you decrease volume, you increase uh, intensity over time, mm-hmm. and that was what in SDA. That's what everybody was teaching. But there are so many other different models that are available. So that was originally intended to be about periodization, but then Mark, myself, and Glenn Penley talked about it, and we figured out that hey, if we address programming, practical programming, not just practical periodization, programming from the time that you start the beginner to where you're getting ready to be elite and transition to a basically one-off programs, that would be something of use to everyone in the field. We would hope, well, we were hoping it would be of use. And that's, that was the evolution of uh, practical programming. And it is, I like that one a lot. Starting strength, is absolutely probably the seminal work if you want to call something like that because it's the starting point and it's teaching people how to teach in the gym and that's it doesn't make any any difference how good you can program if you can't teach people actually how to actually do the exercises if you can't actually coach then in the gym it makes it difficult to be a good programmer that's really interesting because a lot of the debate uh, that I was reading at the time, you know, and most of it was coming through uh, Mel Sif, was all about loading parameters and intensity and and basically the programming. Um, <laughs> lot, you know, lots of fights about yeah. periodization and stuff, but nobody was actually talking about where your knee should go in the squat. You know, yeah, the people forget that. Sif wasn't writing specifically about the average guy at the gym. He wasn't talking about the average recreational weightlifter. He wasn't talking about the average CrossFitter. He wasn't talking about the person that does Zumba. He wasn't talking about the people that were doing yoga. He was talking about preparing athletes for high-level competition, taking them from square one to square two to square three. And so you can have lots lots of debates about things like that. But you need to know the population you're dealing with. They're specifically applicable. Programs are specifically applicable at certain times, certain types, certain times. And that's what we tried to do with practical programming was to make sure that people understood that you use this type of program with a beginner. You know, basically linear, simple linear progression is a good is one of the best programming approaches for beginners that you can get and you know matt via's periodization you know you're talking you're talking about that's appropriate for intermediate to advanced and with the way you depending on how you sort of vary the the parameters you can move that on into the elite group as well but it's you you have to know how to use the tools at hand and one of the things that i actually enjoy is that when people, it was ten years ago, people would, were all up in arms—not up in arms. They were, you know, quite fascinated by super training. Everybody would say, "Have you read Super Training?" Yes, Super Training's done this. And super training. Most people can't actually understand Super Training because the original Super Training, because it is written so poorly and had lots of internal conflicts. And when I read it. And it took me a long time to read and study super training because I had to get 
a notebook, I would take notes as I read it because the translations, the the way they use words was so a little bit a little bit odd. Yeah. And a little bit difficult, very dense. So most people who say they've read you know, super training probably haven't read it. And if they've read it, they haven't read it in detail to the detail where they under, actually understand what it is said. There's bits of, of, of super training that I still scratch my head at because at one part of the book, it says this and another part of the book, it conflicts in the way it's right written. It, there's conflict. And so I'm not really sure what he was saying a or B. Right. So, so I'm, I'm, I really don't, I don't want to denigrate anybody's work because that's a great piece of work because it's done something that nobody else had done. It has tried to take an, a sort of a big, massive field of literature. Uh, you know, Bud Charniga at uh, Dynamic uh, is a Russian linguist, and he translated his a bunch of early stuff in the night, 1980s from Russian into English. And so Bud and and, and – uh, Sif have done us a great service by helping us sift through a huge amount of Soviet literature that was previously unapproachable and, and not known to us. Some of the problems we do have with the Russian literature is it's very difficult to get your hands on the actual cited research. You can find lots of things about here's, here's the finding of so-and-so's study, but we can't actually look at the methodology. We can't look at the actual subjects other than maybe their Olympic results or their national championship results. We can't see the results of their training. So we have limitations in the Russian literature. Um, you know, there's also the fascination that, and this goes, this is sort of a left turn here, is that there's always been a fascination with the Bulgarians because of their success starting back in the 1960s, 70s. And um, Carl Miller was the, the national coach in the 19. I guess it was early 1970s, and in 1974, he released a series, well, sent out to the national team members and the junior national squad, if you wanted to call us that. They, he would send us a the Bulgarian program. He basically put us on a Bulgarian program because he had gone to Bulgaria to learn the program directly from Abachev. Ah. So... From the earliest days, 74 um, and 75, you know, there was a group of us kids in, that ended up in Kansas City uh, at Shawnee Mission Olympic Lifting that were on the Bulgarian program as little munchkins. <laughs> and I was an idiot. And here's, here's one of the things, and this is one of the things that we've always talked about, do the program. Because Carl understood that the American – weightlifter wasn't uh, cold out of a big you know, funnel. We were the people that wanted to lift weights, not the people that were selected to lift weights. Right. So the Bulgarian system is very robust, very hard. If you break, there's somebody to take your place in it. That's not the way it is in the United States. If you break, there's nobody to replace you if you're halfway decent. That, that just means that we've lost one more weightlifter. Right. So he told us to keep our K value somewhere between 28 and 32. And so what did a little kid try to do? 
No, I didn't listen. I took it all the way up to 42 to 45. And what happened? I cracked. I overtrained and it was not a, it was not a pretty sight. So you got to listen to your coach on occasion, even if you have a lot of testosterone running through your body. <laughs> Does it seem as if the, you know, the gap between uh, science and practice, or maybe I should say academia and practice, was a lot narrower in these Eastern Bloc comp- countries? Is that why we're so kind of fascinated with, uh, you know, their research and their practices? Well, what their, their, their approach was very practical. Okay. You know, it, it was applied. Basically, what is the pro- you know applied research is research that's done specifically to solve a problem. Age research is applied research. Basic research is doing research for its own sake to ex- to extend knowledge to learn new things. So the Soviets used very applied and a very applied approach because the problem that they had to solve is gold medals. That's right. That was the problem. Okay. So how do I get from A to B? Well, from how do I get from A to B? I put my best scientists on it and give them the authority to do X, Y, and Z so we can produce gold medals. And so that's the fascination is that they had the ability to take the scientists were also coaches, had the ability to actually move and take control of training, choose experimental training with high-level athletes and low-level athletes. So they had freedoms that you can't have in Western science because there's, first of all, how many weightlifting coaches with PhDs are there? And how many weightlifting programs are there in the United States where you can actually gain access to athletes and put them on experimental programs. Mm-hmm. That's why I was, I was very lucky to be at Wichita Falls at Midwestern State University because not only because that's where Rip and I met, but we also uh, – Glenn Penley, one of my uh, – also also somebody from Kansas, from Kansas State University, go State, um, moved down to Wichita Falls to do, the mas- do a master's with me. So at a, we had a regional weightlifting development center there where it was under my control. So when we wanted an experimental program, we got an experimental program put in place. I did some work with Mike Stone at the Olympic Training Center, and we, he and I developed a program, a big experiment, a mini-month-long experiment based on Glenn Pendley's uh, master's thesis. Wow. And, and Mike Hartman Went, actually went out, one of my other graduate students, uh, he's now director of research at AdvoCare, uh, went out and stayed at the Olympic Training Center, drawing blood, supervising the things, making sure things were going well, uh, while Mike Stone was out there as well. He was currently the head of exercise physiology at the OTC. So we had this very elaborate program. We needed two weeks of downtime at the beginning of the training program so we would get an authentic or endocrine base baseline. Mm-hmm. And then based on individual training uh, results and blood uh, profiles at the end of each week, we were going to basically give feedback to the national coaches if the athletes, a specific athlete, 
was approaching overtraining. And that way they could act on that, reduce load, reduce, and whether it's volume or intensity, they wouldn't take an action to keep that athlete on the proper track towards peak performance. Well, what we found out is that coaches don't always want to do things. And so we had gone through this entire long multi-month program and on the very last data set that we needed, the men's coach basically pulled all his athletes out. The oh. women's coach, uh, Lynn Jones, kept everybody in, but men's coach did not. And so we have virtually no way to figure out if that experiment worked on the men simply because we don't have complete data set. So if you don't, the Russians would have never had that problem because right. – that wouldn't have happened. Do you see more models of that example, you know, applied research in the West now or anywhere now? Um, applied research, you know, is supposed to solve problems, you know, like take the example of AIDS. And in exercise academia, the problem is that we're not as fit as we should be. So the problem we're supposed to be solving is how do we make people more fit? Okay. And that is not the research that is done in academia right now because how much research have you ever seen that actually – well, I wrote about this about 10 years ago. Jeez, 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago, there was a really nice article by a guy named Midgley out of the UK that basically did a review of all the literature on uh, VO2 max gain and aerobic fitness gain that he could find. And at that point, his statement was there is nothing in the literature, there's not enough literature, and the information that is in the literature is so conflicted that there is no way to give coaches guidance on how to develop VO2 max. And VO2 max is supposed to be the gold standard or has been. We know it's we're not really a gold standard. It's a proxy. Right. But if we can't tell coaches how to improve VO2 max from the research that we've done, haven't we just wasted a lot of time? Well, in, in the respect of helping the exercise industry, yeah, we did waste a lot of time. But in respect to academic careers, they didn't waste time because they got publications. And if you don't publish, you're not going to have a job in a couple of years at a university. It's just that simple. And it's not a good rule. It's not a particularly stimulating to quality research, but it's the world that academics have to live with. And, you know, I, as much as I criticize research papers and like to poke holes in them and say, this is a, no, this is not particularly a good paper. Um, I still have to give the guys that produce those papers some level of respect because in exercise science, they're getting absolutely no funding to do research that is going to save their career or keep their career afloat. They have to do something because if they don't, they don't have a career they can't provide. So I mean, they're in a really difficult world. I have, was a, exercise academic for 20 years and it was always a challenge. It was always 
you know, 60 to 100 hour work weeks, but no, you know, who cares about that? Because everybody has 60 to 100 hour work weeks at some point in their life if they want to build a career. Right. But but the problem is is that exercise academics have that for their entire career. There is no off. You know, you don't. You can't turn off. You can't not do things. You can't take opportunities, or you can't not take opportunities. But that also leads to a problem, and I see this in a lot of NSCA publications uh, research. Is you know, you've heard, you know, of p-hacking in, in the sciences. Basically, you, you don't really know what you're looking for. You don't really – or you want to maximize your possibility of finding something significant. So instead of just asking a very precise, laser, clear question that you can test empirically, measurably, objectively, validly, reliably, they'll come up with questions – or a question or questions, and then they'll throw in a whole bunch of other extra measures on top just because they're drawn blood and they're actually looking for, you know, CRP, C-reactive protein. They'll say, all right, we're going to draw CR, we're going to measure for CRP, then we're going to do this, 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 these other 25 tests, and we'll see how all those play out as well. So instead of asking a simple question, that is clear and that they can answer, they basically use a shotgun. I call it a shotgun approach, not p-hacking. It's a shotgun approach. Some, hopefully something will come out of this experiment that they can write up. But then that's one of the, the other problems that we're, we see with exercise academia and science in general is that people like to publish data that is significant and I mean by significant is not that it's a significant finding in the context of the world or the context of training, but it's significant statistically. And statistically significant does not mean that there's anything significant in that paper or in those findings in respect to the training of the average Joe. So there's – the academia is fraught with difficulties, but I cannot fault – the people within what we need to see is that the approach from administration and the requirements that universities set upon their faculty needs to be more reasonable because if you're a average university professor, assistant professor, associate professor, full professor in the United States, you're going to be te- you're you're not going to be at a research one institution where your majority of your job is getting NIH funds, funded research and things like that. You're going to be at a smaller university where teaching and student interactions are the most important. So you should be, the requirements for research should be less robust or less rigorous or less numerous. And even at the research one institutions, I would much rather see people be able to think, pontificate about the ideas that they're trying to research rather than to be an assembly line of papers. I have a friend in the UK that uh, a couple of years ago produced, he was on 42 papers in a single year. Wow. And in his annual review, 
his superior said that, wow, this was, this was okay. Now next year you need to do 50. So that's a scientific experiment, write up analysis and write up every week. And that's not a realistic expectation. Luckily this guy is, is a madman and is, he never stops. But that's the kind of unrealistic expectation you get from administrators. If you did this much, man, you can do even more. So it's it's a, and that, and this is one of the reasons I'm not in academia anymore is I would much rather teach people how to be trainers. I'd much rather teach people how to be coaches out in the commercial world than to teach and actually teach a lot of people rather than teach a few people within a very restrictive environment. And universities are, are fairly restrictive environments. So do you think that the, the best, like most useful knowledge then is coming from the commercial sector? Can we go that far along? Well, I can't go that far. I know that there are some, well, one of the things that has kept me involved with CrossFit since 2005 or 2006 was that they allow me to write and pontificate in published ideas that no one else would. You can't. One of my papers that I published in CrossFit was about the paradigm of exercise physiology. They published it in untouched, well, edited. They did a great job editing. Here's props to the editorial staff at the CrossFit Journal. They did a great job. But then I sent the same paper in a more academic form to some academic journals. Five years later, it gets actually published in a severely abbreviated form. Every editor that saw that paper that I submitted, every science editor, privately complimented me on that paper, but they said that they couldn't publish it because it didn't fit for X, Y, or Z reason. So. Even within exercise science, getting publication, well, the CrossFit is able to publish things that other people can't. You can see some very practical information. They're very open with it. It's accessible to anyone. Whether you agree with it or not, you can, well, you can learn lots of stuff from things you don't agree with. I can learn lots of things from watching a bad coach. I can learn lots of things from negative or insignificant findings, I can learn things from significant findings. The number of papers that are significant, that significantly apply to the real world of fitness training that are produced by academia is abysmally low. There might be one paper in a thousand that means something in the context of training the average person in the average gym. And I'll use an example of one of the things that we see, I see frequently, and it could be just me and I'm just being a dick or something, but there's been that a very recent, just uh, there was a paper out of Canada, I forget the university, but it was the high volume versus low volume training generates the exact same strength gains. Right, yep. All right, if that was, all comes from a paper that actually didn't actually, actually didn't actually, well, <laughs> it actually did not compare 
high repetitions to low repetitions. It is a misstatement and a misunderstanding of the researchers of what they've actually done. And then the press department at the university wrote up a uh, press release on it. That press release hit the news, uh, I guess, the AP wire, and then everybody starts picking up on it and just reiterating what the press release says without actually reading the literature, actually reading the paper. So let's talk about high versus low repetitions. All right, low repetitions. We're talking, what, one, two, threes, fives? Right. That's, all right. Then we're high repetitions. We're talking mid repetitions or fives, eights, maybe tens, maybe. High repetitions, tens, fifteens, something like that. Well, what they did was they compared high repetitions to high repetitions. They took eight to twelve sets of eight to twelve and compared those sets to twenty to twenty-five. Wow! So nowhere in that paper do they actually have low repetitions represented. However, the literature, their what their comp, and this is the problem of the the researchers as well, is that. They did not know enough about strength training to actually understand what low repetitions actually means in the context of the real world. The person that wrote the article and every single meet and I've seen this in there's been people fell into this trap in the weightlifting world in the fitness world. You just go on to Facebook or go on online and, and Google high reps versus low reps. Some you'll get. People that are relatively respect, you know, respectable within the fitness industry bought off on the press release. And they've got to get into the literature and read it because you can't tell anything from the press releases. Yeah, how can a layman tell the difference between these good research this good research and, and bad research and you know, how do we pick and choose what gets applied to our clients? Well, for trainers they need to actually. I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack here, one step. Okay. You're in Canada. Yeah. All right. Well, we have down here we have the United States Department of Labor. Okay. It's a government, you know, it's the government um, entity that deals with labor issues. They describe the preparation to be a fitness trainer, aka a personal trainer, as. What you need is a secondary or high school education and short on the job training. So that's the level of education that the government would expect a personal trainer to have. If you come in to personal training or fitness training or actually coaching, the same thing, with that background, you will never ever be able to tell the good from the bad, separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of good science, bad science. You actually need to go take some courses in science. You need to take anatomy, some physiology. You actually need to talk to somebody or get some tutoring on how to read a science article. Dang, maybe I should actually write something on that. Absolutely. The, the issue is that if you can read a science article and put it in the context of your own experience, that's how you tell the difference. Because for just like this article on, on high versus low repetitions, 
if I just take somebody's word for it, somebody that I respect without actually reading the, the article, I'm going to get lost. And if I try to read the article without understanding how to read a science article, I might not pick up on those things. But I'm betting that almost any trainer out there that read the paper on high versus low repetitions would probably pick up on the fact that they never did ones, twos, or threes in that particular paper. Okay. So one of the things that I'm, I would always recommend is that every trainer needs to read the science journals, the ones that are available to them. And we have a problem with that is that there's pay gates on almost all of them that people are going to try to cite from. You know, med science and sports and exercise that is really a noted source. It's behind a pay gate. You have to pay as like $35 for a single article. Unless you're a member, then you can, you can buy a membership to into the ACSM and you can get uh, access. NSCA has Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, which produces some of the funniest papers you'll ever see. There's a few good papers in there, but it's behind a pay gate, and it's difficult to get to those articles if you are not a member of the NSCA. I'm not a member of the NSCA because they don't actually represent me or what I actually think fitness and strength and conditioning should be. So a trainer needs to go read needs to read the literature. Don't take someone else's word for it. I know you have a lot of stuff to do. Otherwise, you've got trainees to train. You have programs to write. You have exercise to teach. But if you need to develop yourself professionally and you want to do the best you can for the people you work with, you've got to get into the literature and read. And uh, what is it? Sci-Hub is one of those ways you can get into it. You know, Sci-Hub is the Pirate's Bay of Science, and they can access, depending on whether they have the same problem that a lot of things do, is that they get shut down frequently because they are a pirating organization, but you can get stuff through them that would not be available otherwise. Quite frequently, since they deal with uh, more higher-level science, a lot of times, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research doesn't actually uh, show up on Sci-Hub. A lot of times, you'll just get an abstract. But search on PubMed. I'd recommend every single trainer to get intimately uh, familiar with, with PubMed because that's where you find the information. It's the biggest – It's the to me, it's the second most useful source of information recovery uh, other than Google and Wikipedia. Where can we learn how to disseminate this type of research, Lon? Is, is there any is there a resource out there that says start here and you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's lots of opinion places with opinion right. on that. Okay. And I've seen what you'll see a lot are people say, read these books. Yeah, read those books. And but for the most current science, there's – I see lots of people – I actually do some of this, but I try to take it one step further. On my Facebook, 
my Facebook pages, I will post, just like other people do, links to science papers that I find interesting. But what I also try to do, I just don't post the link to the paper. Hey, look at this paper on this. I try to actually say, here's a paper on this. I find it interesting because of this. So it's, I try to take it one step further. And when I say that you, and for me, when, when I say that I find it interesting and because it says X and Y, I'm hoping that people will take the time to go read that article and not just take my word for it. Because I can be as full of BS as the next guy. Um, I try not to be, but you know, my part of what I look at as my job is to poke holes in science that's meaningless into the terms of the, the context and in the context of fitness. And that's almost a full-time job because the stuff that gets out there. One of my favorite cartoons that I've, that I've ever done was the guy that's standing on top of the ivory tower of academia talking about he he found some really cool data about some kind of fruit berry extract effects on geriatrics who spend four hours on a BOSU ball. I mean, that's the kind of research that has no meaning to the rest of the world because <laughs> you're mixing, mixing lots of things there. All we want to know, and the point of that, the point of that cartoon was that all the fitness professional really wants to know is how to make somebody more fit, more fit, more quickly and more safely. And the exercise academia is not providing that. They'd rather, they'd rather spend more time in the nutritional side supplementation. And when you do an exercise or a fitness study and you throw nutrition into it as well, you have two different variables that are competing against each other that make, and most of their exercises designed don't let you separate it out. So you end up with a, a research paper that you can't determine. Was it the dietary intervention that caused the change or was it the actual training intervention that caused the change? We don't know. Okay. So if I'm trying to compare, uh, opinion, less useful information, you know, I think this is what happened with advice which is usually supported by data. And um, are, are there any like quick litmus tests, you know, any red flags that I should be watching for when I'm reading this stuff, Lon? The, the first thing you do when you look at a recommendation from someone about training is how does that jive with your experience? And this is one of my recommendations and one of my demands of my previous graduate students is that do not ask subjects or trainees to do anything that you haven't done yourself. If you have personally experienced every type of programming that you have done research on, you can, you then have a broad base of experience that you can then evaluate others' takes on those same that same experience, like programming. So be as broadly experienced in the context of your actual profession. If you're if you're a weightlifting coach, if you're going to be a fitness professional and you're going to hold yourself at to be an expert in strength training, resistance training, weightlifting, 
then you better be fully competent in not just teaching weightlifting and in respect to the gym, but you should also be competent in weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding, strongman. You should have underneath your belt the experiences that will help you determine whether what you've just read or what someone just told you has a chance of working in the real world. Your experience, developing your experience is an absolute must. And as I say, that may be the first step in enabling you to figure out what is good advice versus bad advice. But, but what about testing that experience too, Lon? Um, so, you know, I get a lot of opinion out there. Oh, I did this thing and I think it really worked. <laughs> but they might not be collecting before and after data to actually support it. They just, you know, they feel uh, as if something worked, but maybe it's just subjective. Yeah. And, you know, we go back to the placebo effect and the, the Hawthorne effect, uh, placebo, you know, you do something different and you really, really want it to work. So right. you either perceive that it worked or you report that it worked or maybe it, the placebo effect actually did have a physiological effect and make it work, but you would be one of the, one of those outliers that it actually did work on. Yeah. Yeah. Then you also have the white coat effect where, yeah, I've got a new coach. Coach is telling me to do this new thing. So I've done this new thing and yeah, I want to make sure this new coach works with me or this new trainer is, is happy with what I do. So I've worked, a little bit harder or do something a little bit different. It may not necessarily be the program. It could be the effort. There's that single, what we've, what I was always taught is you can prove anything with a single case example. Okay. So if you see, and this would, I think this would probably be the story of CrossFit is that in the early days, you see a few people, that just got insanely fit and could do things that you wouldn't expect. Those that early video of, of uh, Nicole Carroll uh, and Eva Twardokens and who was the third one in that video that did the Annie. muscle ups, the cleans, muscle ups, and air squats. Yeah. Um, oh, I that, see. That, that 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 video was at the time was brand new. People looked at that as a curiosity, but, and so the people could look at that as a one case example. In this case, it was a three case example, but it was that one, that one gym in Southern California produced this. But now we look every which way you, every which way you look in every city there's CrossFit gym, you see that same kind of progress people doing things and especially women doing things that was 10 years ago would have, they would never have thought they could do. So the buildup of that anecdotal evidence is needed. And you just don't see that in, in it very often. And as a coach, if somebody comes to me, if it's one of my trainees or one of my athletes, and it says, I want to try this. I'm going to ask them why you want to try this. And I'm going to basically, I'll look at what, they, what they're what they bringing to the table. But 
if it doesn't make sense, it's the coach's job to be able to scientifically, through scientific principles, the principles of adaptation, not the principles of exercise science, but of biology, physiology, physics. Um, we should be able to describe why it would work or why it wouldn't work. Okay. So there is a place, though, for experimentation, but are you saying that don't experiment on your clients or do it on yourself first? Or Well, I never have anybody do a program I haven't done myself Okay. because – if you know my my mentality is that if I can actually do it, I'm not actually that talented. I'm persistent. That's why I was a pretty decent weightlifter. I was a pretty decent wrestler and stuff. Is that I was persistent and I tried very hard and I just continued to work until I became a master. I'm sure that other people are more talented or just as talented as I am. I'm just in the average and. If I can do, if I can take, if I can complete this program effectively myself, then I feel comfortable about asking somebody else to do it. But the question I wanted to, the comment that she's made that I want to address is should you test, should you experiment on trainees? Yes, absolutely. Because not everybody responds to the same program the same way. So part of what you're having to deal with is you can apply a template program. Yeah, you can use a template program to a bunch of people. And then once you watch what happens to that bunch of people, then you start manipulating it to make sure that it's individualized. Not everybody needs to be on the same program. Not everybody needs to be on different programs. And the only way to figure out what works and what doesn't work for that individual is to experiment. And I will uh, go on the, on the record and say the best university experience that I ever had, the way that the place that actually it actually worked like a university of old was supposed to, where you had, you had discussions, experimentation, refinement, discussion, application in the real world was when those weird afternoons with Rip and I in Wichita Falls Athletic Club talking about the problems in exercise science and we would just get out in on the platform and just screw with each other's positions, talk about the way that we were approaching programming. We would get the unfortunate people that would be in the gym at that time. And we would work on, on concepts with those individuals. I mean, it's the gym is the best science lab in the world. Every trainer, every coach has the best science lab for fitness. They could possibly ask for because you don't need to draw blood to get good data. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to, um, kind of cap this off or maybe it's a cliffhanger one and I hate to wrap it up, but, uh, I am going to have to, so, Yeah, I, I tend to ramble. No, no, this was fantastic. And I know, um, I had a bunch more questions for you, man, but I think this, this gave me even more than I'd hoped for. And so, uh, maybe we can do a part two sometime, but would you like to talk about your online courses just a little bit? What I've, what I'm doing with the online courses, and this is how committed I am to trying to change how exercise professionals, 
personal trainers, fitness trainers, coaches, whatever, what have you are prepared is that I put my exercise physiology and anatomy course up online for free. Anybody can take it. If since people don't need to go to university to become personal trainers, but they need to understand science, why not just give them the science? So I just give people the science that they need gratis. Now, if they wanted CEU credits for those things for the for the course, they got to take more formal tests. There's there's quizzes and stuff inside the course to actually test to whether you understand it or not. But there's formal tests that we give if they want to have uh, get CEU credits. But I'm very happy with providing my knowledge for free um, as much as I can. Because I want my only goal is to make the fitness industry better, and the one of the other I do the exercise anatomy and physiology is the one that I came out with first, simply because it's there aren't very many resources out there like it, and it's huge. This is this is a course that could take you up to six months to get done working on it pretty steadily. You can get it done in four months pretty easily. Because it's built for a university semester, but it's it's pretty chunky. Once you get done with it, you'll know some stuff. The other course that I put up for free was I worked with a pretty well respected uh, yogi from Scotland. Yes, from Scotland, and we came wow. up. She, I wrote a book with her a uh, couple years ago, and we came up with a free online course that's for for the gym people, with fitness trainers that want to use yoga yoga postures in their training of their clients, but don't want to carry or, or have to learn all the other accessory things that yoga takes along with it. Like the philosophy, the cleanses, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is, it's very straightforward and simple. I'm not denigrating that the yoga is all the other bits that go along with it are not useful. What I'm saying is that I like the physical. I think gym, uh, gym industry, fitness industry could benefit from, just simply the physical aspects of yoga. So we put it up for free as well because we are both committed to giving the best information out to help people out in the field. At this point in the interview, Lon and I had been talking for an hour and so we started to wrap up. But some big questions persisted, like why was he doing all this educating for free? And what is the best path for a trainer or a coach to become educated? Is it commercial? Is it more academic? At the other end of the spectrum, how far should a trainer go before requiring you know, more academic education, like a master's degree, or even referring a client out? What's the limits of our scope of practice? Lon had a lot of thoughts on this, and so we came back to the table. We talked for another hour, and some of the insights that he shared wound up being some of the most important parts of this interview. So thanks for continuing to listen. I think, uh, you know, maybe I'm just projecting here, but I think a lot of people go from academic to commercial. Maybe they they start in a university and then they realize they, they don't have the practical knowledge that they really want. But do you see Absolutely. it going the other way too? That's, and that's something that you should you should interject in the discussion because okay. it's absolutely true. 
Okay. So do you think that people can effectively start with a commercial education and then move more to an academic? Like, should they? I actually think that's the way it actually should be arranged. Is if you look at the Department of Labor's description of typical in personal training or fitness training, typically they have a high school degree and they have on-the-job training. But that doesn't actually... I wouldn't be satisfied with a trainer having that because they don't have any underpinning knowledge. They haven't been taught anything except how to move the pins on a weight machine or how to turn treadmills on and off. They don't really know anything about the about adaptation for fitness, what they're actually trying to induce. They don't know anything beyond what the owner of a fitness facility has taught them and how to use the machines and how he programs, so they're not independent. The commercial education side goes much further because they're teaching you, you know, even though people often say, hey, you can't learn anything in a weekend because you've only got 16 hours of contact time. If you look at a one-hour university course, that's 16 hours of a one-hour university course over a semester. So, you know, you can learn a lot in 16 hours of instruction. And practical, not practical, excuse me, commercial education tends to be more practical. They're teaching you a system. They're teaching you how to train people. And they generally give you the independent reason of why they're doing it. So you get the whys and the hows. Juxtapose that against higher education. And it's really, really, really common, way too common, to have people come out of exercise science, kinesiology, and even going back to the original or the origination of the entire field, physical education. You have people coming out of physical education programs that don't know how to teach exercise. They may be able to, may have learned how to learn motor control. They might, might have learned about motor development. They might have learned how to, you know, I use this a lot of times because I've seen it in, uh, as an example, I've seen this as, uh, in lots of programs teaching kids how to, teaching students in the university how to juggle handkerchiefs and then take that over to public school as a, a skill learning uh, uh, model. But when you leave one, some of those programs, you have absolutely spent no time learning how to teach somebody how to lift weights. You haven't learned how to teach people how to run. You haven't taught that, learned how to teach them, teach them anything that we will consume and deliver in a gym. So at the earliest point in a trainer's career, commercial education is generally the place to start if you want to be effective and be able to make some money uh, and be ready to make some money as a trainer, to be actually to be a trainer. It's not, it's not gained in the classroom at a university. And if you actually look, anybody can do this. You can just go online and look for a personal training degree from a university. And you will not find them because they spend all of their time, the, the two major tracks are 
exercise science where you're going to be an exercise physiologist or a clinical exercise professional, or you're going to be physical education. The other thing that they prepare you for in higher education is to go on for further graduate study in, in uh, exercise science. So my position is that you should always start with commercial first and then progress to the university when you want to add work with clinical or disease population in your uh, practice. Is that the only time you would pursue an education, uh, like an academic education track? Well, I pursued education. I actually went and studied biology because I wanted to know more about how my body works as an athlete because I knew that if I knew more about how it worked, how I could and and how it responded to to exercise, I should be able to, you know, tweak my performance. I should be able to understand how my engine runs and I should be able to, you know, put on new parts to be able to or modify the parts I have to perform better. Anytime that you want to do something like that, yeah, the more education you get, the better. But in terms of personal training, working in an absolute gym, a gym absolutely as the only um, occupation, then university education is, might even flip a coin because most programs that would say that they're preparing you for a life as a trainer, as a secondary uh, possibility, are not going to teach you the business aspects, they're not going to teach you the health and safety aspects, they're not going to be teaching you lots of the, the things that you need as a fitness professional working with the, the public in a gym. So there's some big omission in the uh, curriculum. And that's not to say that they don't have great curriculums. There's some really great curriculums out there, but they're dedicated towards clinical exercise rather than basically exercise science rather than uh, actually preparing for the work at hand. So let's let's say this is your son, Lon, and you really care about uh, his fulfillment of his dream of you know creating a career in fitness where he's changing people's lives. Where would you start him? And if you could tell him in advance, here's where you're going to go for your next level of education. How would you map that out? Well, my son's in a particularly difficult time if he was going to, if he was looking for that from me because I'm going to tell him. Well, first thing you need to do is take my courses. So, <laughs> And and that's one of the problems that most parents will have is their kids aren't going to listen to them right. until they're about 30. Then they'll start listening and going like, hey, you knew some stuff back in the day. But one of the things you need to do as a someone who wants to enter the field of personal training is you need to figure out what system that you want to deliver. Do you want to be a CrossFit trainer? If you do, Take, those, take as much of that training as you can possibly get. Practice with people that are already CrossFit trainers. Basically, look at it as a internship. Look at it as an, an apprenticeship. Um, get your classroom education via the, uh, the certification courses, the specialty courses, and on and on. If you 
you're going to be in, you're just interested in making people stronger, you know, you can start with USA weightlifting courses, you can start with starting strength courses, you can take all kinds of courses as long as they are valuable and have something to deliver to you and prepare you to work in the field. So you can do that for running as well. Um, I mean, you have to pick out what your niche is going to be, what is it that you really want to teach, and then pursue that through the commercial side and immerse yourself in actually doing that training. Because, you know, I, I can teach people how to run. I can teach people how to compete in running. I don't do that because I don't do that myself. It's, it's just I would rather, I'd rather work with weightlifters and powerlifters because if it's in my wheelhouse of previous experience, then I'm comfortable coaching because I have the education, the commercial education. And for me, I have some additional education that goes along with it. So step one for somebody off the street is pick what you want to teach get a commercial certification through that and start practicing with people that are, that can teach you more about it. You know, buddy up with someone who's already a trainer. And is there a step two there? Like, is there a point when everybody should pursue some kind of academic education? Um, as soon, there are some, there are some good courses at universities that would serve as great underpinning. I'm firmly behind people taking anatomy and physiology courses, as most people would understand, you can take them at universities, but you, they're going to be a bit pricey, and you also have to be admitted to the university, but you can also take those as MOOCs at edX and some other places have, have them uh, for inexpensively. You could, and one of the things that I really tried to prepare myself being an isolated athlete back in the day was I actually went to a university and was able to get into the foundations of athletic training um, course there. Um, that was the University of Missouri, Kansas City back in the day, and way back in the day. And I took that course because it was sports medicine. And being an isolated athlete, I didn't have, and also in weightlifting, you didn't have ready access to athletic trainers. So the only way you were going to be able to get viable athletic training support was if you could get it yourself. So I went and took a course in athletic training. That one probably has to be done at a university because that's the only place that you're going to get that course. And you can get first aid and safety, but getting a course in the basic, I guess, uh, Medical support, um, it's not really medical support, it's just management of injuries um, that you sustain during training. But the course that they offer is valuable and would be useful. Um, but once again, there's a restriction bar to get into that because you have to be in, a, a, um, you have to be admitted to the university that's offering it and you have to be in the program that's offering it. And if you don't want to be an actual trainer, athletic trainer, then that's a bit of a problem in access. Do you see, uh, going the other way with this, and because you brought up injuries, 
Do you see a tendency for people to be a little bit overconfident in their education, whether commercial or academic? You know, are they operating outside their scope of practice? Yeah. And that's, that is a, a real key issue in terms of keeping you and your business safe is operating within the scope of practice that you are prepared for. As fitness trainer, you were, if you were presented with a injured athlete, the courses I'm talking about would be that you'd learn how to manage them. You're not diagnosing anything. You're not treating anything. You're basically identifying. You're basically uh, managing whatever the problem is until they've had time to actually seek proper medical care. And in some instances, like callus removal, things like that, those, you don't really need a physician or medical care to get that done. Taking some university courses and applying them to your commercial, to augment your, your uh, commercial certifications is a good, good track. And one of the things that we see frequently, if we're talking about going the other way in education, is, and this actually sort of demonstrates the shortcomings of university exer- or university um, programs in preparing uh, fitness trainers, is that we see a huge number of people with not only exercise science degrees, but biology degrees, history degrees, uh, political science degrees, moving into the occupation of personal training or fitness training or exercise training uh, from with university degrees. And then they go to commercial education to actually learn how to deliver training. And that should tell us something that, well, that should tell, tell us something, that even highly educated people feel that commercial education has more to offer the exercise industry than universities. And ideally, it should be the other way around, but currently that's not. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that. I, I think that uh, the commercial, part of what makes the commercial education track so successful is that if the program they're delivering doesn't work, then they go out of business, right? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I mean there's, the industry, commercial education, commercial fitness education industry gets lots of criticism, lots, lot, mostly because they think it's quite mercenary. But you know, it's business. If you have something to sell, it's valuable. It produces results. It's going to be in play for a long time. There are instances, however, that some of these systems don't actually deliver much. They just let the individual do whatever they want, and it lets them have the certification that that they can use on their business card. I mean, a certification is only as good as the system it represents, and there's very few really robust fitness certifications out there that actually prepare you to work in the world because, because so few of them actually have practical components. There's tons of them that just you read a book or you read a smattering of PDFs that they cobble together, send to you, you take a 
100, 150 question test at the end and could be open book, could be online open book, and boom, you're a personal trainer or a fitness trainer. If you haven't gone to a class and actually interacted with real people learning, that should probably be one of the signals that it might not be as practical as you think and might not be as preparatory as you think. That was my experience, you know, 10 years ago with ISSA, uh, personally, I did a couple of courses and certifications through them, but has technology bridged that gap at all on? Like, has, has it, uh, are we better now with what we can learn online? Well, on my side, I try to be that way because everything I do actually in my practical courses online, that hundred percent online, we assess people practically. we Look at them. We see what they can do. They demonstrate their, their they demonstrate their own demonstration of exercise skills. They demonstrate their teaching. So, and I think we're the only ones in the world doing that right now. And the reason that that happens, and that's the reason that the NSCA and so many people uh, stopped doing practical assessments, because the NSCA a decade or so ago used to do actual practical assessments. You actually had to be cleared by someone who watched you teach an exercise skill uh, before you get your, your CSCS. It's no longer that way. The reason that those things happen, that we remove practical components, practical, practical assessments from certifications, is that it's expensive. It's very expensive to do. It's laborious, time-consuming, and in many ways, you know, people often talk about, all right, this certification is accredited by X, Y, or Z. Well, sometimes those agencies, X, Y, or Z, have it set up where practical assessments become untenable with un- underneath the accreditation system. So you have two pressures to remove um, practical assessments from certifications. You have financial and you have accreditation pressures. So we have gone backwards in some ways, but we've gone forwards in others. And I still think that if you really want to be really good, get you can get your um, get a good handle on exercise delivery or fitness instruction delivery in the certification courses that you actually go to. And that's why the, we have such a success uh, that we're seeing in the past 10 years, this has exploded where seminars and workshops are coming into play from people that, from some very notable people and some people that are less than notable. If you have the skill to teach, you have a system that works, then, you know, people are putting those on the market and they're actually uh, reaching out and touching people and, and improving the gym environment for lots and lots of people. You know, CrossFit's obviously the one that's been the most successful uh, in this. I mean, they're now, what, about 14,000 affiliates and somewhere around 110,000, 120,000 uh, CrossFit uh, trainers and coaches. But then, you know, you also see some of the other big organizations, like ACE has been around for, what, 30 years, 40 years, and they have somewhere around 
some types. They have like 15 different uh, certifications. So that's still successful. And, you know, if I was going to pick out one of those big nonprofit organizations and say that this is probably the best one, you know, it's hard to say that they're the best out of the group because none of them actually do what they really should be doing. But ACE is the one that actually attends to its members as trainers. That's the mission of ACE is to do to improve and educate trainers. So what do you mean by attends to the needs of its members as trainers? Well, it's a nonprofit, so it has to have a educational mission, and its mission is to educate personal trainers. It says so in its mission statement. Whereas American College of Sports Medicine, National, the NSCA, National Strength Conditioning Association, both in their mission statements talk about sports as their mission, not training in the gym. So you have, that's, ACE is the only one that actually specifies that trainers are the ones that they are trying to educate. Okay. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the Kilgore Academy. I know you've got several different moving parts here, Lon, but maybe you can kind of give us the uh, broad overview and then I can ask some specific questions. Uh, okay. Um, well, when I was working in Scotland, I started developing uh, university courses for UK universities um, out of the materials that I had previously written the you know, book fit anatomy without a scalpel and some other unpublished materials and actually a lot of my lectures from I accumulated over the years and what sort of grew out of that development of completely online experiences a idea that hey I should probably start offering these as continuing education uh, for People that don't want to go to the go to university to try to get uh, continuing education, or don't have access to anatomy and physiology quality anatomy and physiology education as a underpinning for their practice, and so I started putting together with some help from Opus um, Learning and CatDM uh, in Edinburgh. We put together a group of courses that we thought would be pretty good uh, to offer as CEUs. And coincidentally, at that time, CrossFit launched their reorganized certification system and had uh, started uh, their movement towards requiring a certain number of CEU credits in level threes and fours. And so I just looked at that as serendipity and started uh, offering CEU courses, and I'm now up on this, the CrossFit page as an approved CEU uh, provider. I do NSCF and some other organizations as well, but CrossFit trainers seem to be ravenous in their consumption of education, and they're the primary customers that I serve. But the Academy was also, it still is to date, a place where I build courses for universities and colleges um, in the U.S. and the U.K. So the courses that I deliver online as CEUs are used, are generally used somewhere in the world as a university. 
I want to change how trainers, fitness trainers, personal trainers, coaches are prepared for their job. I saw so, so many failings in exercise academia, and I saw so many failings in commercial education for these groups that I wanted to try to contribute anything I could to actually make the situation better for those trainers. And that's why, you know, I put up anatomy and physiology um, as a free course online. If you want exercise anatomy, you want exercise physiology, you want to know about it, you don't want to pay for it, but you just want to learn about it, free course, you can use it. It ties into your into your work with, with uh, individuals because that's my goal is to make the fitness industry stronger and the people that work in the gyms better educated so they can be more successful. The academy itself is just a multi-little fast, a little operation that is built upon building new courses specific for uh, educating trainers. Wow, that's really remarkable. I mean, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want this to just kind of pass in the conversation because it really is a big deal. I mean, you, you've got a top industry expert here putting out a lot of free material. And if they want to, they can even take the formal assessment and get 48 CrossFit CEUs, right? Yeah. The, the assessment is, we charge for the assessment simply because I have to make ends meet somehow. Of course. Yeah. But the courses are, Currently, I have the two courses that are free, the exercise, physiology, and anatomy. And then we also have a gym yoga instruction course. And that one's out for free, too, because, you know, a lot of people talk about mobility, and they really don't know what they're talking about when they're operating on sort of a nebulous definition when they talk about mobility. And yoga has one very clear application in mobility, range of motion. And there's a system I had access to, Julie Hansen, a fabulous expert um, and at, with a long history and has studied and worked with some of the best uh, yogis in the industry. We came up with a very simplified system and of how to actually program yoga for the gym, not for a yoga studio, for the gym, for use in the gym. And we have the probably the most detailed anatomical description of postures, yoga postures, in existence. Because we went through and used my anatomical brain and her descriptions and demonstrations to come up with. And, well, the ones that people always remember is up dog and down dog. All right, we actually have anatomical descriptions of where everything's supposed to be in line, how everything's supposed to be oriented, in order to do it. And that's free too. Wow, that's uh, incredible. Mobility is important. And as we all get older, mobility becomes limited. And this is, you know, doing some yoga, a few yoga uh, postures or a series of yoga postures at the end of a training session or as a standalone recovery session is a good way, a good way to actually enhance mobility in specifically in terms of range of motion. And you've also got a one-year personal trainer curriculum set up, right? Is that going to be online too? Well, there, that's one part of the stuff that we've done in the UK. Um, we have a validated certificate of higher education that's 
in place at a university in Scotland. It's not currently being offered. It's just been uh, validated, and it's just setting ready to be, have the trigger pulled to offer it to the public. Then there's a, and that's in higher academia at a university, then a couple universities are looking at a separate set of courses for what's called a higher national certificate that's offered at the further education level. The way I sort of sort of describe that to people in the U.S. and Canada would be the community college level, okay. the two-year college level. So we have those in place getting ready to go. Uh, the HNCs look like they're probably going to go live in uh, February of this of 2017. Now, those are one-year university and college programs that are intended to prepare individuals to be fitness trainers. So it's very practical, very... It's the sort of the culmination of what I've been trying to do is to separate out all the extra stuff in university education and distill it down to what is it that you need to have, what do you need to know to be functional and effective as a trainer in the gym and try to get that down to a short period of time within the context of regulations of the university. That is a feat in some, in many instances, just to stay within the regulations of a university because universities developed over time and changing things is difficult to get done. Changing the way they do business is difficult. Well, I imagine it's especially difficult in Scotland, and, and this might apply to the entire UK now, but um, there is kind of an accreditation system required, right, for personal trainers right. there? Well, personal training is not really regulated in a lot of places as, as other occupations would be. In the United States, there is no government regulation. In Scotland, there actually really isn't. In the UK-wide, there's only one one regulation, government regulation that covers it, but it's just a general occupational regulation. It's not specific to trainers. And lots of people think for some reason that trainers have to do X, Y, and Z. Like you have to be on this register, you have to have this certification, you have to have this, this, and this. And that's not the case in the majority of the world. I believe Australia has some of the more robust regulation, but it's not that robust. Canada, uh, well, where you're at, I think, uh, you know, you have to take, well, I believe in some of the territories there's, you have to take a CEU type course every couple years or pass a couple uh, tests every couple years to demonstrate currency. And I think that's about it. Uh, not even. We're really the same as the States. All right. Yeah, it's even easier here uh, because easier. we, yeah, we're not even limited by litigation here. So, uh, yeah, we could really mess people up if we wanted to. Uh, um, all right. Yeah. So, so there's universities have very internally have very specific regulations you have to meet with quality control and with courses that are offered by the universities. They want the best. They want the best courses possible. And the UK is very strongly regulated in that internal regulation of universities. 
difficult to get things through those universities because they have, oh, I don't want to know how many committees that you have to go through to get a new program and new courses approved. It's, it takes a while. Um, for one of those courses that I, that I worked on, the university course, we started in 2012 and we got approved 2015. Wow. So it, it takes a while to get done. Okay. Would you say that, you know, you actually have a lot of courses on your site. Would you say that if somebody starts with the practical, uh, or the commercial education, and they, then they want to mo- go to more academic, would you say that these courses can fully replace the academic experience at most universities? Well, that's one of the things that universities would only let happen in a very small instance. Everybody who's taken a course at one university and tried to transfer it to another university, you have to go through a process. Of course. Because the receiving university is going to determine if its quality is the same, the content's the same, or if it's significantly similar to what they offer. And they will only do so after it's gone through a committee or evaluated by someone against a previously populated checklist. So... The chances of everything that I offer being accepted at a university is is very slim. But the chances that something that someone takes like anatomy or the exercise anatomy and physiology courses transferring in, we've already have we already have several people that have transferred in courses from my commercial education side to satisfy prerequisites in their university courses or university uh, degree programs. So, yeah, some of it can be, but it's, you know, I can never guarantee that simply because it's up to the individual university. Right. And in the UK, they have these things called articulation agreements where I could approach an individual college or university and say, hey, if, my, if people come through and take these courses, will you accept them at some level of status? And... But that's a case, once again, it's a case-by-case. You have to talk to each individual college or university to make those arrangements. And then you have a contract to write out with them. Okay. So it's possible, so long story short, is it's possible that some of them will be will transfer in. And that's actually what I'm working for with the UK universities that are going to, and colleges that are going to be running the programs that I design. Since, this, <laughs> since the content is the same, I would hope that they would accept some of the the courses that students take in my system uh, as credit, advanced credit for their uh, agency or, H- or the CERT HE. Okay. Lots of luck with that. So, Lon, one of the one of the primary reasons I was so excited to get you on here is uh, this is called Two Brain Radio because we do talk a lot about, you know, clinical stuff, uh, you know, left hemisphere uh, dominant tasks and but you're also a very creative guy. You do a lot of creative work. You do illustrations and cartoons. And tell us just a little bit about that. Well, most people really don't know that I was an art school dropout. That, and the reason I dropped out from of art school is I specifically went to art school because I wanted to learn sculpture. And, you know, I was self-taught, um, did clay. Well, my mother was a ceramicist, and uh, well, she was a nurse, and she had a side business as a ceramicist. And 
So I learned how to work with clay at an early age, but I, my sculpting skills needed help, and I wanted to do bronze. I wanted to do, you know, you know, I wanted to be Rodin. I wanted to be, you know, Michelangelo. I wanted to do that kind of stuff. You know, that's unrealistic given my level of talent, but I still wanted to give it a try. So I went to art school at a university, and it was going to be the third year of university before I actually even got my hands on the first sculpting tool and the very first sculpting class. So I dropped out of art school. So that was my... I do have a sort of a history of art and creativity, but then it just sort of went dormant for a long, long time. And when I went back to grad school and was in my PhD program, I did the illustrations for my dissertation and a few other dissertations for other students because, you know, if the illustration doesn't exist, create it. You know, if you have the ability to communicate with something with uh, a some kind of illustration, it's great because it makes it easier for people to understand. Then, once again, after PhD, that sort of just fell by the wayside and then it reemerged in a very crude form in the very first edition of Starting Strength because we needed lots of illustrations, lots and lots of illustrations done in a very, very short period of time, and we needed very particular illustrations that showed very particular things. And to have that done professionally was going to be cost-prohibitive and time-prohibitive given the times that, time that we had available to get things done. So I just decided that I would just get out a pen and paper and just start scribbling stuff. And so for the next few years, it was doing illustrations for starting strength, practical programming, and some other projects. And I look at those, look at those, and you know, never spent more than thirty minutes to an hour on any of those illustrations. And I like that they showed what they needed to show. They, they're still crappy illustrations. I can do so much better given the time, but I never have the time. But those are fun things to do. And some of the really fun stuff is when I actually have a, what I think is a funny idea for the cartoons that sometimes appear in the CrossFit Journal articles, you know, it's, I think I have a fun time trying to, to draw those things. And a lot of those, I'm actually learning new techniques because I've always been pencil and pen-based in my work, and those cartoons for the CrossFit Journal have been, I draw them out, ink them, and then I scan them, put them in, and I do the coloring and some fixes and stuff with, in Photoshop. So I'm learning new techniques all the time as well, trying to, trying to be a little bit better. Well, I think it really enhances your writing, too. I, I think back to that last CrossFit Journal episode and the, the cartoon where, you know, the lifter is doing fine at three reps and five reps, and, and then something magical happens, and suddenly it's unsafe. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that was funny, and it also kind of explained uh, the irrationality of, of the theory better than words could. Um, but do you find that seeing shapes and, and the practice of art helps you when you're coaching people too? Well, yeah, and that's where some of the idea about 
anthropometry comes into, the geometric shapes that are formed by the body. When you have these different line links trying to move into the right position, when we're talking about the, you know, the scapular alignment model of setting up for the pull in a deadlift or a clean, you know, you, you have the bar essentially over the navicular cuneiform on the foot, midfoot, the bars over that, and mid-scapula or the scapular spines over the top of the bar. As long as you have that line in place, then the length, the diff differing lengths of the body create different triangles, central triangles of the arms, legs, and torso. So seeing those kind of things makes it easier for coaches to be able to you know, sort of fidget around the art of, well, actually, yeah, the art of coaching is seeing those shapes, seeing those those relationships between moving parts. And some of that is just absolute experience and having somebody point it out to you. But once you actually see those relationships, then it's sort of an aha moment and it makes your life so much easier because instead of having to stare at a trainee doing a pull or doing a clean or doing a press or doing any of the basic barbell exercises, standing up and looking at them up close. You can be across the room, look at, glance at them for our, uh, just a couple seconds and see the shapes, see the orientation, see the associations, and realize what the technical error is. So it's, it's, it's a, I definitely think that having a artistic guide could be helpful in the coaching situation, but it's not an absolute necessity because if you have somebody point out those relationships, you know, it's sort of like when you're, when you have an art professor in his, art history telling you, you know, what are some of the key points of this particular piece of architecture or this, this piece has this characteristic of X, Y, and Z, and after they tell you, tell you, you see it. You know, some people can intuitively see how those things, those changes, those differences, or those significant points. But anybody who is taught about that piece or taught those associations can pick those up. So, you know, it, it makes it can make it easier, but it's not prohibitive that someone can't pick up those artsy pieces of training if they attend to them and have some help from people that already are experienced in the system. All right. That's fantastic. And so I, you know, selfishly included that last question, Lon, but was, was there anything else that you really wanted to get out to the listeners here? Oh, never stop learning. And that's probably the first thing. Never start, stop practicing. And uh, let's see, we talked about, oh, I did have, I did want to circle back to, Reading a, a journal. We talked about reading a journal. Yep. How to read a journal. And I thought about that for a bit here. And the first thing you, you do when you have an article that you see that you want to read and think it has something in there for you is you, you can read the abstract, and the abstract gives you that snapshot. But, you know, sometimes abstracts are written in these long... 40-word sentences with 37 acronyms in it that really don't tell you much. So sometimes it's easier just to go down into the introduction and try to find what the hypothesis was or what the purpose of the paper is. 
If you know what the hypothesis is and what the purpose is, then you can look at the methods that they use and determine if the methods that they use can actually answer the hypothesis or the question that they ask. If that if the hypothesis and the methods don't match, just throw the paper away because it's going to be useless. If the hypothesis and the methods do match, then you can continue on and look at the results. And what I do with results is I actually, first thing I do is look at subjects. Who are the subjects? You know, you're always going to see these things where they say, these people were experienced weightlifters with six years of training. And this one sort of plays into the uh, one we talked about earlier about high versus low repetitions and the problems with that paper. Yep. In that paper, the average trainee had six years of weight training, but yet we're at the beginner's level of performance. So there was a mismatch in the reporting of those subjects. So those subjects were still beginners, even though they were said that they had six years of training. And in that training program that they put them on, they had more more progress in the 12 weeks of the program than the individuals normally have in a year. So there's an issue with previous training. So this, you look at the subjects, see if the subjects can actually help you or help the researcher make a assertion or a conclusion. And on beginners, anything works. It doesn't make any difference whether you have to do push-ups or progressive bench presses. Their you know, chest strength is going to go up because it, it, it will. Okay. Then if you look at those methods and or the, sub, the subjects, then you look at what they actually, what kind of training program did they actually use. And this is the one that really gets, you know, the, you know has, there's a beef with CrossFit and research because the researchers will say it's CrossFit, but then if you actually read the method, it's not actually CrossFit. So it's a problem. And in one of the fun things in cycling is they will say, we had the subjects do X, Y, and Z, and then they did two to three hours of normal training per day, and they never described what normal training is. So once again, you can't learn anything from that because we have, there's no description. Right. So, so then you, after the methods, then you can go look at the results, and then you have to put those results into context. If they got one kilo of improvement, then that was statistically significant. Is one kilo really really practically significant? So that you have to put that back into the context of your own personal experience. And those are those would be the three little bits that I would recommend first. But for the most part, if you're getting ready to, uh, this might be the most important part of that of my recommendation. You're getting ready to read a research article and you've never been prepared to do so before. Make sure that you have you're right at a computer that you have a Wikipedia handy, you have a dictionary handy, a medical dictionary handy, and you have some time because it's going to take you and it's going to take you some time. Make sure that you write on the write notes on the paper, highlight things, things that you don't understand, look it up in real time before you move to the next idea. So, it's not as easy as you would think reading something would be, but scientific writing is written, those papers are written for other scientists, not for easy reading. Hmm. Okay. 
I think that, that's great advice too. Solon, thanks again for doing this. Uh, I, I know that I've completely taken up all the time that you've been generous enough to give me again. Um, but uh, I'm sure I'll have other stuff for you in the future. Oh, not a problem. Well, I always enjoy talking to people. I like to run my mouth. Oh, I think uh, everybody's going to stay tuned right to the end of this one, man. It was great. So thanks, Lon. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot you an email in the next day or so. All right. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. I am primarily concerned with the development of critical thinkers. I think that one of the best ways to create an entrepreneur is to teach somebody how to ask better questions. I say that a lot on this podcast. Lon is a walking example of two-brain philosophy. He's great with the critical stuff. You've heard him disseminate research now, and if you take some of his free courses, you're going to be exposed to a lot more of that analytical thought process. But the right hemisphere of the brain involved more with creative thought, art, seeing shapes, processes, language, is also prevalent in lawn. The guy is an illustrator. He's an artist. He started at art school for sculpture. He thought he was going to be the next Rodin, but what he found at art school was the same thing that most of us find at university for exercise science, that you don't get your hands in the clay until your passion's already gone. Three years in, maybe you get to touch an athlete. Maybe you put your hands on a barbell. In the commercial sector, though, in one weekend where you're face-to-face with an instructor, you have your hands on a barbell, on a plyo box, on a med ball, on a human within the first 30 minutes. Lon touched on the value of making mistakes, screwing up. And I certainly did that with my first few clients. I can think back to those original clients back in 2000, 2001, and the stuff that I was doing with the non-athletes especially, I wonder about now. Some of the stuff was right, maybe more than my jaded view remembers even. But some of the stuff makes me shake my head. I can remember one of my first clients walking through the door and seeing this squat cage with shiny new chains hanging off the bar and saying, Chris, what the fuck is that? And then she left because her goal wasn't to get stronger, faster, jump higher, have a big box squat. Her goal was just to tone up her midsection a little bit. And so I learned a hard lesson on one of my first days as a trainer that if the client doesn't want to do what you're trying to get them to do, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how great your programming is. It doesn't matter how amazing the exercise choice is or how much you know about mobility. Your expertise doesn't matter if you can't create desire. That is what two-brain business and two-brain coaching are all about. One of the things that I like best about the commercial realm for education is that if you're teaching something that doesn't work, the market will hold you accountable. Nobody will want to learn from you anymore if your processes don't hold water in application. Universities can get away with this stuff because most of their money comes from grants and external funding, sometimes not even from good sources. The commercial accountability, in other words, just isn't there. When you're reading research published by a professor or a sports scientist, your biggest question should always be, Who benefits? And when you're supporting knowledge or teachers or courses or programs, the same question should always apply. Who benefits? Yes, they're making money. If they're a commercial enterprise like CrossFit, they're making a lot of money. But who benefits the most? 
CrossFit benefits a little bit, HQ. You benefit even more because what you're paying, a thousand bucks, can be multiplied over hundreds of times every single year on a repeating basis. And to take it a step further, your clients benefit even more because what they pay you a month, 150, 200 bucks, is nothing compared to what they're saving in healthcare costs and quality of life later on. So when we say who benefits, what we have to consider is the value of the time spent learning. Just like in business, when we measure the value of the time spent coaching, managing, marketing. If the return on your time is greater than the cost of the course, then you're crazy not to pursue it. If you could spend 8, 16 hours learning a new skill that will allow you to teach people and make a good living for the rest of your life, that's a fantastic investment. If you could spend 30, 50 hours learning business processes that will make you profitable for the next 30 years, that's a fantastic investment. Education is one of the best investments you can make. Betting in yourself means educating yourself. And betting in myself is the one bet I'll always take. Have a great week.